Welcome to the Cup of Nurses Podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Cup of Nurses Podcast. We're your hosts, Matt Sartrick, and myself, Peter Fendero. It's a podcast where we tackle current health news and hot nurse topics, one conversation at a time. Welcome, guys. Thank you for being on the show and listening. Subscribe if you haven't. Today, we have a special guest, Jake Grezek. Um, he is a PCU surgical nurse in UCSD, right? Mm-hmm. And prior to his experience there where he traveled nurse for nine months, he was in a pulmonary step-down unit at Northwestern. And as well in Northwestern, he was an IVF fertility reproductive nurse where I'm kind of curious about how that kind of goes and the experience there. So we're excited about that. Um, big things for us, we have the travel nursing checklist, which is finally out, guys. So if you guys are curious about this, go on couplenurses.com. Scroll down a little bit, click the download. It's a free guide and it gives you the ins and outs of how to become a travel nurse because a lot of people don't know how to travel mm-hmm. and become a nurse. So check that out. So Jake, tell us a little about yourself. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. Um, I am a 20-year-old nurse from Chicago and I lived here my whole life up until about nine months ago when I moved to California um, to travel nurse. Um, but prior to that, I was I worked at Northwestern, um, like you said, on pulmonary unit. It was pulmonary step down. Um, we had lots of trachs and vents, and I remember like being fresh off nursing school and it was probably three weeks in. And I was like, "What did I get myself into?" And I feel like most nurses think that probably the first few weeks of orientation. But I remember it being a really intense feeling like I thought maybe I had to switch units or switch hospitals because there's just so many tricks and vents everyone was mucus plugging um, not everyone the unit wasn't up to par with like continuous monitors so not everyone was on continuous O2 sats and that's like the biggest thing with pulmonary right um, so you just never knew when someone was going to code and I remember and it was just wasn't just me my coworkers too would pray like every night shift we were going to work everyone was like please no code please no code and because almost every other night we, we had one or a rapid response it's just a lot and it's crazy with all, all that anticipation like, like before work like you know like you saw your shift at 7 o'clock or at 6 but then mm-hmm. like 4 o'clock it's you're like damn I gotta go and work a couple hours I wonder how it's going to be I wonder what's going to happen today it's For sure. It's like it's times. it's pretty much having the Sunday scaries every single day of the week, every single prior to every shift. And it, it's some of it has still stayed with me. I like notice even though like my working conditions are so much better in California, I've noticed that like there's still a little anxiety anticipating what's going to come with every shift. Because um, you just don't know what you're walking, especially if you've been gone for a few days, you just don't know what you're walking into. And and we as nurses also we have like this little don't jinx it, don't say uh-huh. the shift is going good when it's like uh-huh. three a.m. because something might happen. So I feel like we're always like so superstitious about things. For sure. Even about like the full moon, right? I was just gonna bring that up. Yeah, okay. I agree. I didn't believe the full moon superstition until I started working, and now I I dread it. Did you ever have a crazy shift working a full moon? Almost all of them. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned about like the whole trach thing because uh-huh. when I was in the ICU when I was um, a new grad mm-hmm. or, I'm sorry not even a new grad when I was a nursing student when I was in the ICU my first day there I got a patient with a trach and when she was coughing and like when her eyes were opening up and her eyes were watery I was in the room like just shitting my pants yeah so I, I like That's I didn't scary. know what to do I'm just kind of like holding her hand so then I just go and get the nurse and she's like teaching me how to suction because I had no idea how any of that thing 1000% I think like we oh, we were always short on the pulmonary step down because no one wanted to work work there and anytime we got a floater who would come it was like going to it was hell because every floater never wanted no one wanted to float to 
power unit. But the good thing is, like, at least when I was charged, I would always avoid giving the floats, the trach patients. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's kind of, I don't know what about trachs or airways. It's kind of, like, anxiety-provoking, I feel like, for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, super excited because, you know, I, you could be coming to work and then you walk into a patient suffocating, you mm-hmm. know, and they have a trach because so they're not, not talking and it's like, their oral airway is fine, but their but, but their trigger cavity is, is completely occluded, and you gotta suction them. You get one thousand percent mucus plug or whatever. Or you have to like put like blocks. sterile water in there to like break up the mucus, right, and then suction it. It could be a number of things. Um, one thing I did learn very quickly though, on working on that unit is like when the patient is coughing, you never want to walk in front of their bed because like the mucus will oh. would literally. You ever had one dislodging? All the way like to the whiteboard. <laughs> People were like. You just never know. That's gross. Yeah. <laughs> or you never bend in front of the trach when you're suctioning it because, like, if it comes out. Two of, I worked with two nurses who were suctioning a trach, and they were, like, bending over, and the patient coughed into their eyes. Wow. And the patient was HIV positive. Um, so, obviously, it's like a mu- it's mucosa, right? So there's a small, very, very small chance, but they had to go on um, all those antivirals right. after. Yeah, and my girlfriend, like, this was when I first started working, and one of my friends was, she was, like, jaundiced from all the antivirals because she had to take it for 30 Jeez. days. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, the one thing, the hardest thing for me in nursing is, re- is respiratory secretions. Like, I, I could deal with, like, shit. I could deal with, with, with blood and, like, guts and people dying. But, like, respiratory secretion, when, like, they're, like, the gurgling sound is just, uh-huh. just so gross. But it's really actually really satisfying when you suction them and they, they sound clear. It's I really know. It's really satisfying. But just the fact that, like, seeing that, like, loogie or seeing that, like, like mucus is, is always gross to me. All I time. agree. Yep. I agree. Just never get used to it. So, to summarize the episode we're going to talk about today, um, we, with Jake, we're going to talk about suicide and nursing, something we're very passionate about, which is a nurse-patient ratio, mm-hmm. which in California is the only state in the United States that passed legislations for it. And then we're going to get to know him a little bit, his travel nursing experience, and him in general being a male nurse and seeing how that kind of plays and all that. Yeah. So, well, go ahead, man. Man. so suicide in the general public has been at like a consistent rise for the past like 10, 15 years, but a lot of times people neglect to look at specific areas where um, suicide is more prevalent, like in the nursing field. Um, nursing compared to general public for males and females, it's almost 30% higher than the average person. So women that are nurses and men that are also nurses, they have a 30% higher chance of mm-hmm. committing suicide compared to you know the general public, which is very unfortunate. And a lot of that's attributed to just a stressful environment, you know, coming in, into work, like Jake said, you know, unsure of what's going to happen, what you're going to walk into, and it's really scary, and it's taking a toll on nurses, you know, nurses are burning out quicker, and they just don't want to come back to work, mm-hmm. and it's very important, because we have a giant nursing shortage, um, people are starting to retire, and new nurses are completing school, and they're going into into work, but then they're leaving their, their profession within a first year, or the first six months, I believe like one out of um, five new nurses leaves nursing, within the, the first year of their career, which is, which is very sad and, and very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to be attributed to the stress and, you know, worst case scenario, we don't want them committing suicide, so we got to kind of address those topics. Jake, have you ever, like, thought about leaving nursing, like, your first six months and just dealing with all this trach and working on the pulmonary unit? I don't think I've, I have ever considered leaving nursing altogether. Okay. Um, the reason I went into nursing is because my mom was diagnosed with cancer in 2005, and she battled for 11 over just over 11 years before mm-hmm. she passed and I think I knew I was going to do something in healthcare ultimately so I don't think I've ever considered leaving nursing but I definitely considered leaving that unit, that unit. Um, and and to be honest when you guys first told me that we we're going to talk a little bit about suicide and nursing I was a little nervous because I wasn't quite sure that I had anything to contribute to the topic but I do have to say when it comes to things that you see in the hospital 
for a long time, I was able to compartmentalize all those things. And I just really thought like, you know what, the things I see in the hospital versus when I go home, you just can kind of separate the two, right? You leave work at work. And I think really this year, this is my third year in nursing. And like, I really think this year started catching up with me, which is why I took this month off to come home. I just like needed mental health break from hospital. So I work at a county hospital um, in San Diego where we get all the jail hold and a lot of homeless population. Um, So I think it just like mentally takes a toll. I think on top of that, this last May, I remember going through like a little depression, um, a mini depression, maybe like it lasted like maybe a month. I remember calling my friend and I was just talking about like, nothing is wrong in my life. He was like, I just talked to you a month, a month ago and you were like the, the happiest you've ever been. I was like, you're right. I am happy and everything in my life is going great, but it's, it's the stuff you see at the hospital. And I remember like we had a patient who had just had two BKAs. She had two bilateral below the knee amputations. Um, medically, they had already pretty much done everything they could for her, but she wasn't, she didn't speak English. Um, and she had dementia. She was confused and she was incontinent. So this woman just had two BKAs and they needed to turn over the room. So they were like, Hey, we need you to discharge her, put her in a cab. We have a wait. we have waivers for cabs at out in oh. San Diego, They're like put her in cab, give the cab the waiver and get her to where she needs to go. And so I looked up her address and she lived over an hour away. I was like, dude, this woman is going to pee in the back seat of the cab. The cab driver is going to kick her out to the side of the road. She doesn't know where she is. She doesn't have a cell phone. Wow. And like, where, who's going to get her? So I, I like highly advocated for her. I was like, we're going to keep her until tomorrow, until her family could get her. Um, and it's just stuff like that. I think those things kind of take a toll on you, whether it's like the hospital administration or if it's the things you see in the hospital. I think just general burnout comes from all different directions for nurses, and it's tough. And like Jake, you know, you experience like the emotional burnout there, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that you're just advocating for your patient. You have to go out your way to like advocate for her just so she doesn't, you know, leave the hospital right. with these shitty conditions. And that's not the only thing that we get abuse from, which is mm-hmm. the emotional abuse from everything. It's also physicians, right? And it's mm-hmm. also on a lateral level, just like you mentioned before, from the nurses themselves that could contribute what we're experiencing, an increase in suicide in general, mm-hmm. but also more prevalent in nurses. Right. So that It's interesting because the suicide rate has increased by 28% since um, World War II. And that's like... How many decades ago? We're going to mm. talk about five decades. And we have to ask ourselves, why are nurses more like... Susceptible. Susceptible to this. Yeah. yeah. Do you think it's like the eight-hour to 12-hour shift? Do you think that makes a difference? That's a good question. I, I personally know. I, I think whatever floats your boat. Like if you some nurses want to work eights, I'm happy for them. And some want to work 12. I understand why if general legislation was passed for all nurses to have to work eights... I don't think I could, I I would leave nursing for sure. I don't think I, even though everyone works an eight hour day, Monday through Friday, right? Or say, obviously we'd have different shifts, right? Because some, we probably have work like Tuesday through Saturday or Wednesday through Sunday, right? Because we, the hospital never shuts down. But if I had to work five eights a week, there's something about nursing that's just so emotionally exhausting and physically exhausting that I'd I'd rather stay a few hours extra on a longer shift and get it done and have a day to myself to recover than to do it eight days out, like eight days in a row. Because if you think about like on a Wednesday, you're like, holy shit, I still have two more of this to go. I'd rather just do the 12s. Um, But I don't know if that contributes. What do you guys think? I mean... Like I'm, I'm the same way. I prefer twelve-hour shifts over, over over like the eight-hour shifts because 
you know, you work less days of the week, and I feel like I'm always a little anxious before I go I go into work, mm-hmm. and I'd rather be anxious for three out of the seven days out of the week compared to like the five or the four, which will be required for for eight hour shifts. But okay. I did this motion online, and nurses it shows that nurses are more exhausted doing twelve hour shifts compared to mm-hmm. two eights. And I know there are some studies that are done that um, productivity and safety in work kind of topples down after eight hours for sure of work. But I feel like, but that was just kind of a study done on like a general. It wasn't it was a nursing related study. It was mm-hmm. general like a like a marketing agency or some kind of a company was doing that study. But I feel like for nurses, it's like a different type type of work. It's a different different job for the most part. It's more emotional, and I feel like. 12 hours is probably ideal. So if we did eight hours, you have to think about it this way, then we'd have three different shifts, right, right, per day. So now you don't just have two nurses in someone's life. You have three ner- three different nurses in one patient's life. And so the continuity of care is kind of broken up a little bit. And that's what we noticed in Oakland because that travel nursing contract was eight-ish shifts. Mm-hmm. And it was only four days a week. But those four eights, I was dreading working four days a week. And mm-hmm. you like your threes, you like your four days off. And we noticed the shifts were like 11 to 3, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, 11 to eleven to 7, and then it was 7 to 3, and then 3 to 11. Mm-hmm. And you can tell right away the difference in care where one nurse forgets to say something, and your shift is so short, you're not able to read through the notes and take care of the patient like the way you should. Right. There's a lot of things that are missed. And another thing that I noticed is accountability. So mm-hmm. if you know that nurse is coming back, she expects you to get stuff done or whatever was missed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you could just throw the stuff on a nurse and you're not going to see her in the next shift mm-hmm. because she doesn't, there's going to be another nurse taking care of her. That so way. that accountability is not there. Right. So that's one thing I noticed that eight hour shifts are probably not good for nurses. Mm-hmm. And some, and some nurses do have to work eight hours, right? In clinics or I like exact for when I worked IVF, I did eight hours. So if, if it floats your bone, you prefer it, then more power to you. Um, I do have to say, I mean, right, Senator Walsh was, like, pushing for, like, I think back when she made that comment about nurses playing yeah. cards, like, she also was pushing for eight-hour days, saying that nurses are too tired working 12-hour shifts. And, yeah, I, I agree. I do think research shows that productivity, like like you said, lessens after 12, after the eight-hour point. But that's why breaks are so important, right, which not every nurse gets. And that will be, we'll talk about that, too. Yeah. yeah. yeah before we jump into the ratios, like, it's, it's you seem like a very healthy individual mm-hmm. that, that copes fairly well. And, I'm sorry what happened to your mother, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of um, things in the hospital that, that like, touch your heart. Mm-hmm. So how do you, like, what's the best way you would give advice? If, say if someone was depressed or, or sad or struggling at work, how would you tell them to cope with certain things? How, how do you cope as an individual outside of work? That's a good point. I think you definitely need someone to talk to. I think people who keep it bottled up inside, are the it's going, it's going to come out one way or another. Um, just depends on how long you're going to hold it in. Um, and if it doesn't come out verbally, it's going to come out in some other way. You're going to be, you're just going to be tired all the time. I just think you need to have like an emotional support team. System. Uh-huh. And it has, whether it's friends or family, you have to be able to talk to someone. And then I think what really helped me is just just being happy for what I had, right? I know that although I can't fix everything that's happening to people in the hospital and there are unfortunate circumstances, you can be happy that these things aren't happening to you and we're still healthy and we have, like, we can walk and we can, we, 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 we're healthy enough to help other people, so why not do it? Um, and then working out, yeah, honestly, I think when I moved to, I always have been into, like, working out, but really when I moved to California, I started putting in, the time and now I'm doing like six days a week I'm trying to eat healthier I think just being physically active 
reduces stress and anxiety overall, yeah. no matter what. There, like, there's no argument against it. Um, research just shows that. It's like it's an emotional freedom. release, right? Mm-hmm. Are you any kind of special diets that you're currently doing? or? I do try eat. I try eat generally healthy, but I think... I think going, and this is again personal opinion. I know it's not a yeah. popular opinion. I think going to any extreme, like well, if we want to try keto, if you want to try intermittent fasting, that's fine. But I think doing anything to extreme is not healthy. I think everything in moderation. And I also think if you're going to completely cut out one thing of your diet, it's just going to come back to haunt you, right? Because then one day you're going to slip and you're going to binge on that thing. Yeah. So if you can just do everything in moderation, like nowadays, like for example, today I had a pulled pork sandwich. I hadn't had one in a long time. So instead of having like the I just took off the top bun. I still had the bottom bun with the pulled pork, but I just like, you just make like adjustments. You make adjustments. Yeah. Yeah. And instead of having the whole piece of dessert after dinner with my family, like we only got one piece and then all six of us shared it. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. You want to jump into um, nurse patient ratios? Yeah. Which is like the topic sure. that we would really like to discuss. And a lot of people don't know that are like non nurses. Like, I feel like we're fighting like this invisible war between the hospital and nurses are fighting amongst each other. And like, as healthcare is increasing, our grid is getting more, you know, strict. Like, for example, us, we don't have a tech on nights. Then they kind of take yes. away a nurse. You need an extra two patients before a nurse comes on. And then we're getting the stress just to cut cut costs and mm-hmm. we're always getting the short end of the stick mm-hmm. and I, you guys never have a tech on nights huh no well at my hospital we, we do okay yeah. nrc we do not have a tech on nights yikes yikes yeah we didn't have one on the pulmonary step down i worked on we had someone who came in at 5 a.m just to do 6 a.m vitals and we each had four or five patients and she would never do all the, like we had 30 beds right um the tech would only do two of your four patients mm-hmm. so you still have to do that too but it's like if you're coming in early just to do vitals like come on right. just like yeah. and, th- and that's the problem with like with these like you know ratios and cutting costs mm-hmm. is like you don't have a tech and for example sometimes i can't find a nurse on the unit and i'm you know turning the patient myself stuff in the pillow mm-hmm. and i'm not using good like let's just say mobility to mm-hmm. do this and you could hurt yourself and we just don't have the manpower to take care of these patients effectively sometimes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think like using the cost techniques to cut staff is probably like the worst thing you could do. Okay, you're supposed to, first of all, you're supposed to staff by acuity. And second of all, if you don't have enough staff to cover the amount of patients, you know, the nurses, nurses are, are going to get over, overworked. You know, everyone else is getting overworked. And the load gets dumped, dumped on the nurses, which is very unfair, which obviously impacts patient satisfaction and patient care. Because we're probably not going to go in there to do the proper teachings. You know, we're just going to come in and come out, not really converse with the patient, not develop like a bond. So only person that suffers in the long run is, is the patient. So sh- short-term gains are, yeah, you're saving money today by cutting mm-hmm. staff. But long-term, you're going to probably have the patient come back and not get the, the full education and not get their full benefit of their hospital stay. And then, you know, patients come back every month. You see them for fluid overload again because they're not taking mm-hmm. their Lasix or no one ever told them to cut down on, on their salt. Mm-hmm. And it only does... Um, those like devastating effects long term yeah i definitely don't think this is a woe is me situation i don't think nurses are oh woe is me like we need more staff because we were just lazy i don't think nurses are lazy at all i think the one resource that is limitless and endless is the professional medical ethic of nurses and doctors and i think hospital systems are it's just corporate america and they're so overly corporatized right now with like hospital mergers and like everything's trying to be streamlined so when you start to function like a factory you kind of prey on these on the on the medical ethic of 
us or like people why we went into nursing right um you went into nursing to become a better person or to make a difference in someone's life and hospitals know that you're not going to drop the ball because if you're dropping the ball that means in danger putting a patient in danger or in harm and patient safety right nursing school nursing nursing school is always pushing patient safety first patient safety and so right and so we're not going to ever harm our patients so if that means staying later to chart or staying later to fix you know a patient who just wet themselves that change of shift, you're going to do it because that's the right thing to do. And hospitals know this. And so they know that they can, this is a limitless resource that they're going to go ahead. And if they drop 30 more things on your EMR that you have to do on your electronic medical record, they're going to do it because they're going to, the nurses will stay and they're going to do it. And like you said, you can't, you can't walk out on your patient. Um, so it's just kind of an unfortunate scenario. I think mandated patient ratios are super important. I think my life has changed dramatically as a nurse from working in Chicago to working in California. And a lot of people don't know that California is the only state that through legislation passed the ratio for the ICU, which is usually one to two. One nurse to two patients. Yes, uh, med surge is one to five, I believe. So Mm -hmm. they're the only uh, state that actually did this. And And this this was was in 2004. 2004. So we're 15 years later down the line, and the only other state to have even tried or to touch it is Massachusetts. And they didn't even get all the units. They only have the ICU, which is one nurse to two patients. And then this last November, they tried to push it for all the other units, and Massachusetts voters voted against it. And I don't think it's necessarily the voters who are opposing it. I think the AHA, which is the American Hospital Association, is 1,000% behind opposing this and influencing voters to vote no because the HA doesn't want to lose money and for them they think right like you said overall it's not caught they it's too much money for them to hire more nurses because it's millions of dollars to hire more nurses to meet meet the ratios right but at the end of the day would you wouldn't you want your family member to go somewhere where it's appropriately staffed and mortality rates fall and be and the the benefit of california having pushed this in 2004 is that it's been so long so now we have a lot of research that shows that mortality rates have fallen steadily since the ratio mandate was wow. passed yeah. and people were, were saying that you know this is unsustainable you know like you said california's mm-hmm. been been doing it for for what, almost 20 years now and it's, it's, it's completely working for them. And matter of fact, you know, California has one of the, the best, like, teaching universities of the University of San Diego mm-hmm. is, a, is a great medical facility. And, you know, they made it work with all this people complaining that, no, it's going to bankrupt the system. They make it make it work. You know, just other states has got to step up and kind of not think about the, the, the short-term income and just look at like, the, the long-term, long-term picture, 1,000%. And I think if you guys look at hospital rankings, UCLA and Cedars-Sinai are really high up there. So these ca- these hospitals wouldn't do, be doing well. Obviously, there's more than just patient ratios that come into play, but these hospitals are making it work, yeah. like you said. Did you notice something different that these hospitals are doing compared to the one like at Northwestern mm-hmm. or just healthcare like in Illinois in general? That's like a difference that you've really noticed? In general or with the ratios? Let's just say with ratios, with the way they take care of their coworkers, any kind mm-hmm. of factors that you notice a, a different change that creates better working environment, a less stress on you. For sure. So I think with Northwestern, if you they do have, I think, a staffing committee. So there are these like general guidelines with staffing, but they're they don't have to be enforced, right? Like by law, if I am supposed to have four patients on a pulmonary step down, which I think is already kind of dangerous because you have four events or trachs. 
on night shift, right? The day shift gets three, so there's this assumption that night shift is less work, so they give you four. And then a nurse calls, we're short-staffed, and you're already at five. But then if someone calls out, you, I've 1,000% have had six patients before. So you go from four to six. Um, it's it's a big deal. Yeah. I think it makes a huge difference. Even just that fifth patient can mess up your whole night, right? Um, so I think in California, it's just nice because by law, you cannot take on on a sur- I work on surgical stroke step down now. So by law, you cannot take more than three. So if we are just short a nurse and you UCSD can't supply us another nurse through full pool, we will just block off the room. And that's something Northwestern would never do. Wow. So you just don't take the patient. They will get sent to an our hospital or they will find a unit for that patient to go to. Um, and I think that's huge. And I think they can't even pull our resource nurse because our resource nurse doesn't take patients. They only cover breaks. Um, so another thing that California has that we don't have is we have a charge nurse and a resource nurse that don't take patients. Their sole responsibility is to help you and cover your patients while you're on break. And we didn't have that. And we have a resource nurse every shift. So they can't even pull our, even if we're short set, they can't be like, oh, your resource nurse will take patients. No, because by law, again, by law, every nurse has to have their break. So the resource has to cover breaks. Um, and they get paid the same. It's not like the resource gets paid any less. It's nice. And I think that changes, it's a whole, it's a game changer. Yeah, just the fact of Imagine like being on like our units here in Chicago. Just imagine having like a like a resource nurse. Mm-hmm. You know, with even though the the QD is still kind of unfair having four patients or whatever, but just the fact that having a resource nurse that where you you can actually take a full break and just leave and kind of just zone out for a little bit. You know, that that offers like a lot of benef- benefit as well. You know, you don't gotta hire two more staff nurses. You know, how about we just start with having one relief nurse for every unit. Right. That'll help out so much. You and like you said, with the, with the productivity, right, over 12 hours, the productivity curve kind of tends to um, sway away like after eight hours of working. So with that break is ma- that break is major. I feel like I recharge on my break. Um, so in California, a big difference is right in Chicago, you just kind of ate when you could or sometimes you didn't eat. Um, and in California, it depends on the unit. So when I float to the west side, which is a med surge side, uh, we do our break all together once. So we get our 15 minutes. But when I'm on the east side, which is surgical, it's a little more intense, the surgical step down. So it's hard to cover someone's patients for a whole hour 15. Okay. So we split into two. I get a 30 minute break, which I usually eat my lunch on, and then a 45 minute break, which I'll like nap on. And it just changes everything. Yeah, I it's feel a game like. changer. Yeah, mm-hmm. the studies show that, like, you know, have, having a break in between like your work schedule, you know, that also boosts productivity. And as nurses, like, I've taken more breaks in California during my eight-week assignment than I did my two and a half years of, of nursing in, in, in Chicago. Illinois. That's crazy. Yeah, I agree. And I did the same thing. I was just taking naps. And, like, people don't realize. So, like, the emotional – it's not only emotional abuse. Sometimes you're on the clock, like, thinking, like, what's up with your patients, mm-hmm. vital signs, blood pressure. You're constantly on. You, There's no off switch. Yes. And you have this anxiety that's mm-hmm. always – it's like this racing mind. Mm-hmm. And eventually it puts a toll on us man and it's nice to kind of take that break where here we're taking a lunch break mm-hmm. but our mind is still on the patient like if i'm eating lunch in the break room and i hear alarm i'll step outside and look what's going on here you have that really they're called a relief nurse or mm-hmm. the resource nurse the resource nurse she takes care of your patient and you literally have no anxiety no stress right you're being mindful and enjoying what you have and psychologically that that makes such a difference huge and i'm glad you brought that up because in at northwestern i would have my phone with me and the call lights were linked to our phone so never i 
I don't even think I ever in my entire two years there that I ever had one lunch where my call, my phone didn't go off. So your con- your lunch is broken up. So there is no you're right. There is no mindfulness. Yeah. You're constantly thinking about the patient, constantly hearing alarm, event alarm, a um, a call light, right? But in California, you can you you can go outside of the hospital. You can leave the unit. You give your phone out, up to the resource nurse, and you give the resource nurse yeah. report. Um, it's just huge. I think. My, I think nurses are generally happier, and I think California is able to retain their nurses more because of that. Yeah, and, the, and there's also studies that are linking, for example, anything that we do mentally, if we're not mm. very conscious of it, it's starting to link to different mental diseases, and it's starting to link to diseases in general, like our heart coherence mm-hmm. is different if we have anxiety and things like that. And it, you can I always e- say stress kills. It does, the literally, one and it's, you can even tell when I was taking care of a patient and like her her daughter was kind of like creating anxiety into mm-hmm. her. Like she was making it seem like everything is always something wrong. Mm-hmm. And that patient was like in the one thirties, one forties, a, a fib, the, the freaking family member leaves. The heart rate is just one Oh eight, one Oh nine, just nice and calm. Isn't it crazy that like, real- your own stress can cause like physiological effects. Yes. I went with my sister to a doctor's appointment last week and she has a huge needle phobia. Okay. Um, and she panicked so much that she gave herself a vasovagal reaction her she like turned pale she was the whole like mechanical hospital chair was covered in sweat and she fainted because you your blood pressure drops so low that you your brain can't get enough blood and then you just faint so if you can cause yourself that much stress in one sitting to like cause your your blood pressure to plummet it's crazy it's just crazy to think about what long-term stress can do to you and imagine that 36 hours week on Mm -hmm. constantly as a nurse getting that stress what are the side effects of that and the Mm long-term effects like i don't think there's any studies on that but i'm just curious what's that going to lead to Mm -hmm. we could say that there's definitely a mind-body connection like another example for this uh would be my coworkers. i think it was his his brother-in-law um, he's just getting getting married and he just bought a house mm-hmm. and no prior cardiac history nothing of, of any sort that we know of yeah. and he just became one day he was telling me he became diaphoretic you know couldn't breathe showing some breath and then he comes in comes in to the doctor he makes him wear a heart monitor for, for a week you know a week later you know his I'm not sure what kind of birth it was I'm not sure if he was in like AFib or, or what we didn't get into all the detail because he wasn't exactly sure his mm-hmm. brother didn't, didn't tell him the full story but he, now he's a pacemaker and it was, this was all triggered by, by the stress of, of the wedding and the, the stress of moving. And mm-hmm. imagine how much, how much stress, stress nurses have. Yeah, yeah, imagine how stress nurses are. If, if you have a, a patient that, you know, suddenly, you know, goes into, um, you know, respiratory distress and you have three family members in the room. So now you're dealing with the patient and you're also mm-hmm. dealing with the family. If the mm-hmm. family's crying, you know, and this guy's going into cardiac arrest, you're trying to get the family out, you're trying to do compressions. It's, it's a super stressful. Just unfortunately, we have a career and we're so young that... Like we literally see people die. Like I never in my life thought I'd be in my twenties, you know, seeing some somebody die as, as or wrapping as someone do. up in a body yeah. bag. Yeah. Most people out, out there in society, when they see dying, it's usually like a family member that, that dies mm-hmm. maybe once every ten years, or they see death that often. But mm-hmm. for us, it could, death could happen, you know, on, on a daily, and it's, it's very stressful to everybody, and it just hurt, affects our heart and especially our gut and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We it, had a we had a podcast. I'm sorry, we had a yeah, podcast uh, episode once about how to cope as a nurse mm-hmm. and. Do you personally feel like nurses are not coping properly? I know you are very yeah. fit. You you know you exercise, you work out, you practice mindfulness. I'm sure you you're very aware of yourself and you know how to. You have a good emotional release, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't take it home. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like other nurses do not know how to do that and it's causing a lot of stress in their life? I'm sure. I think it's coupled by a lot of things, right? Kids at home, relationships. It's one thing to be stressed at work, but then if you're stressed at home, like something's got to give. It's just too much. Um, it could be. I I think 
coping with stress is something that isn't talked about enough. Um, yeah. You, even ratios themselves, like it's like this invisible war that people don't know. And I feel like the general public should be more aware of this. And right. They should be, you know, we're the most trusted nurse profession, mm-hmm. right? As nurses, people should hear our little cry out to the world where we need we need this like through legislation. Mm-hmm. Maybe can it happen on a federal level possible? We could have mm-hmm. staffing ratios. Like we need to have somebody elected that's willing to stand up for nurses like in the healthcare system. Everyone, right? No matter who you are in this world, you are one day going to have a, pa- a family member who's yeah. in the hospital um, or who has to have seek some kind of medical care. There's no ands if or ands if sore buts about it. So you as a person want your family member to receive the best care that they can. Yeah. And that that starts with patient ratios. I'm sorry, but mandated patient ratios is important. The AHA, the American Hospital Association, can want to oppose them all they want because they are they are they're going to say they're ineffective or it's it's too much it's too much cost to hire all these new nurses. And there's already a nurse a nursing shortage in America, yeah. right? So I I kind of understand where they're coming from, but at the end of the day, it's just a business for them, and they. Plain and simple, they just don't want to put the money. We can cut costs all the time with cheaper Foley kits or cheaper supplies. I'm always getting to a hospital, I'm like, oh, we have a new Foley kit. Oh, this time we have a new latex gloves. Like, what? what's going on? We're trying to cut costs every which way possible in the hospital. And you're right, we want faster turnover. We want we want patients, uh, shorter hospital stays for, per patient, right? There's whole committees that study this per hospital, like what's the average time a patient stays in your hospital, and you're ranked based on that. So if we're going to try cutting costs and saving money every which way possible, it sounds so counterintuitive to me to not hire more nurses for better patient safety and patient care and let less mortality rates because at the end of the the day yes hiring nurses is going to cost millions per hospital it is um but you're going to save money with all the less mistakes that will be made and you're going to retain money because you're going to keep retain nurses at the bottom at the end of the day the reason northwestern has such a high turnover rate is because they know they're the number one hospital in Illinois, so they're not gonna, it's a business. They're, they function as a business. They're not gonna pay the most, but they're not gonna pay the least. And people will work for them just for the name on the resume. I mean, I'll be honest, that's why I work for them. So I did it for the name and I got it and I left because, and that's, there's such a high turnover on every unit there. And it just, you're, you're seeping out money by having to reorientate all these new yeah. hires all the time. So if you can retain nurses who are happier and you have mandated patient ratios, at the end of the day, it's just going to save money for everyone. Yeah, like you said, a lot of times you just hear like cost cutting, cost cutting, but where, yeah, we're cutting costs here, but where is that money going to that? Mm-hmm. Like, like who's getting reimbursed for this? It's obviously not us, the nurses. No, it's no. Not, it's not the physicians. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure certain surgeons get like a, like, like a little kickback, you know, for mm-hmm. doing certain surgeries, but, you know, we always hear cost cuttings and then, you know, and then you, we notice that the state comes in and we're not hitting our numbers. Right. So, you know, we cut costs and we're going to blame, blame nurses. What are the nurses doing wrong? How can we change the nursing care, you know, to make our numbers better? Well, an, an easy solution is, you know, better patient ratios. You know? For sure. Like and you guys it. always get, like, talks, like, at this every couple, once a month or every couple of weeks, like, this is the language we now have to use for patients because yes. patient satisfaction scores. I mean, this could be a whole nother podcast, but truly patient satisfaction scores drive me zonkers right. because 
nine out of 10 times, the patient is going to remember what went wrong and yep. not what went right. So that one call light that you took 10 minutes to answer because you didn't give them their apple juice, but you were doing compressions in the next room, they're going to remember that. Or yeah, we, you have cable, but you're missing the one channel I want. That's the stuff they remember. They don't yeah. remember like some, especially where I work at UCSD, um, a lot of the patients are medically illiterate, honestly, like they don't have the medical knowledge. They understand that we're implementing and that they're doing better, but they don't understand the progression of change or yeah. what would have happened had we not intervened. So they, these patients, I don't think a hospital is customer service. I'm sorry, I just don't think. But that's like a whole other to- topic. And people keep asking me, would you come back to Chicago now that you've been home for a month visiting? Like, do you miss it? Would you ever come back to work here? All Like my family keeps asking me, all my friends want me back. I was like, I love Chicago, but I can't come back. I don't think I can do nursing. Now that I know what it is on the other, like on the other side, I don't think I can come back to it knowing how it was and how stressful it was and the no breaks and no support. Um, and also the money at the end of the day, like it's just so sad that Chicago, like Illinois and all these other states haven't caught up to California. Yeah, it's very unfortunate too. And also in California too, like I feel like, the staff and management had your back more in California mm-hmm. with, with patients. You know, like I say, a patient would act out. I feel like other nurses and management will, will kind of get your back. They'll kind of try to tackle, tackle the patient, you know, trying to calm him down and trying to, you know, help you out. But mm-hmm. I, I feel like here in, in Chicago, it's more like a patient, you know, has a complaint. They go with whatever the patient says, and it's kind of my fault, you know, because of the patient satisfaction mm-hmm. scores. You know, you got you to gotta make the patient what happy. What the customer says is right, right? Right. You're like, yeah, you can make the patient happy, but if I'm miserable, like, what the hell? Like, I'm your nurse. Like, I'm the one that comes in here back for, up, every day. Back exactly. up. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like they, they don't do that enough here because everyone's, like, like, scared mm-hmm. for some reason. But I feel like since California is more union-based, all the nurses are more, like, geared together, more, mm-hmm. more stronger and work together. Stronger as a team. Exactly. I wonder if we're able as a state to push for that. Like, how does that work? Do you push for unions at a hospital level, or can you push that, like, on a legislative level? You could probably do both, because there is union hospitals here in, in Illinois. Mm-hmm. The University of Chicago okay. being one yeah. of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's another pro. Gosh, I feel like this is going to be a rant on Northwestern, and I didn't want that this to go that way. But... Another problem is that at Northwestern, the CNAs were union, but not the nurses. So anytime there was like a little tiff between the CNAs or a nurse, um, management nine times out of 10 would take the CNAs position because they were backed by union. Um, And nurses are disposable. When you're not union, you're disposable. You can be fired and they will find a new nurse. And in fact, you need to have like a union book. Like a union Mm -hmm. book is your guideline. This is what you can do with nurses, you know. There's a union book in California for nurses, what nurses are exactly responsible for. Here, here there isn't. Like, I get in trouble for anything. And I could basically kind of do anything I want here as well. It's mm-hmm. kind of a little bit looser. Mm-hmm. Like, you get a little bit more freedom here in ICUs than over there because I think it's more by the book over there. But like, but like I said before, like, like they got your back. Here, it's a very loose term for nursing. We're not 100% sure what we can exactly do and what we can't compared to union nurses where they have a, a strict guidelines. And same with, like you were saying, the CNAs. The CNAs have a written out guide of what they could do. They could easily be like, mm-hmm. hey, no, this is not what responsible for. It's not in my union book. I'm pretty sure they also had, oh, and could do like a, a, a obscure number of tasks an hour. So I remember one time one of my really? CNAs being like, I can only do eight tasks an hour. I'm, I'm like capped. I'm like, it's 20 minutes into so, the hour. Right, yeah. So do you think so, it's harder to delegate? Did you have oh, delegation one, issues? thousand percent. Wow. I would be like, wow. my CNAs in Cali are amazing mm-hmm. and anything they're very proactive anything i need help with there's never any fight back it's just kind of like sometimes they'll be like you know what i'm i can't do it right now because i have xyz going on but i will get to it yeah. and in chicago guys 
I would tell, I would like go find CNAs in the break room. Like, hey, room 12. Or you wouldn't find them at all, you know? Yep. And I'd be like, hey, room 12. Like, I'm not asking much of you. I'm just asking, they have to go shower. Like, can you take off their EK, like their leads from their telemonitor and help them? And they're like, oh, Jake, my bat, my neck is really hurting right now. I'm like, girl, why'd you come and work? But again, I love CNAs. I think our job would be impossible without them. I think they're a huge help. It just does make a difference. It does make a difference when CNAs are unionized and nurses aren't. Either like they should all be unionized or none of them should be. Yeah, I feel like all or nothing approach. And it's also where the union also, the the, the drawback with the union, it's an amazing thing, right? It Mm -hmm. protects us as the person working for the company, but there's also the, it kind of, it doesn't weed off the lazy people Mm because the lazy people could stay because the union protects them. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that are like, well, I did my eight tasks, you know, for Mm -hmm. this hour and I'm already maxed out. I'm sorry, Jake. Yeah. Do it yourself. Like that is very petty. You can't get paid for the like next 30 minutes if you're going to just say on computer, right? Yeah. So it's just crazy. But I don't know. What differences did you guys feel like you saw in California? Were you guys generally happier? Um, I was, I was definitely happier. The mm-hmm. only thing I was upset about was just floating. Right. But, you know, that's... that's that just con- you know? that just is based on contract. Yeah. Yes. So, as long as sometimes, like, with my contract, of course, and there, there's in fine print that you will be the first to float if they need you to. But my, my unit always needed people, so I rarely floated. I think twice during the nine months I was there. Wow, really? Yeah. Yeah, but I feel like, you know, in, back in California, I definitely got more support. I was more relaxed at work, not as tense as I am mm-hmm. here, because... You know, like there was union book, and I was, I was, I think, but also got patient with less security just because I was traveling, and it's also a liability issue because mm-hmm. I understand that you know if they don't give me the proper teaching and they give me very acute patient, I could you know um, be like, hey, you guys never tell me this, and now this patient's suffering, and now my license is online, so I'm gonna come back at you guys. So I understand that I got like a probably not as a high acuity assignment, but I still felt like I got more support there yeah. than I ever got here. Yeah, yeah. and if, I don't know, like. I don't know if very, I mean, units over there, I didn't feel like it was very niche, but then we were only there for eight weeks, so I mm-hmm. probably, probably didn't get the full feel for mm-hmm. the units. And you're also a guy, and that's yeah. another thing we could touch about mm-hmm. that. I feel like the women will approach you differently compared to if it's a girl traveler, or sometimes you see on the Facebook groups, mm-hmm. and these travel nurses are that are women are getting abused by the nurses that are staffed there, and that's an issue. Mm-hmm. And I personally didn't experience, I had a good experience, I'm down for another one. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if that's a dynamic that... We, we, we can't see the other spectrum because we're all, you know, males mm-hmm. here technically, right? So, so Jay, you being a male, do you, do you feel like you get treated differently compared to, like, your female counterpart, counterparts? That's a good question. I don't I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I do think men in nursing are very important. I think yeah. it's great that we're breaking the mold. Um, I think from a physical standpoint, it's great. I don't think women can't do anything that right. we can't. Um, but it's also awesome to have like extra set of hands or like sometimes with the bigger patients, it's nice to have, like, I know some of my girlfriends at work will be like, Hey Jake, like, can you help us lift? You know what I mean? It's just nice to have. Um, at the end of the day, I don't know if I get treated differently. I don't think I've ever been treated differently. And I also don't think I've ever, the only time I've ever had an issue was in clinical, um, during like labor and delivery when during, for like religious purposes, they didn't want to have a male nurse. But otherwise I've never had a problem. And, um, I get that question a lot from my followers and people are like, I'm male. You've really inspired me going into nursing. Do you think I'll have any like problems with it? And I don't think so. Do you guys? Have you ever had a patient where they told you they don't want you like 
I, I've had an mm-hmm. issue where I had to go get a tech or another nurse to take my patient to the bathroom. Yeah, or to that do that, that because I'm a male and they don't like me. Yeah, or that want happens me too. Yeah, and as long as you have good camaraderie with your staff, it shouldn't be an issue, right? I mean, you can still take care of the patient if the only request that they have is to have a female to go bathroom, and that's fine. And then you, if you're, if my female counterpart is helping put my patient on a bedpan, I can go help with one of her patients. And you just kind of trade off or you help each other. Yeah, I'm like the same way. Like, I don't see myself being treated differently, but my, my coworkers would, would tell me, be like, yeah, doctor, you, you should dick, buddy. He's, he's nice too because you're a guy, mm. you know, which is like, like okay, but I mean, he's mm-hmm. been a dick to me before. It's not just, mm-hmm. you know, that, that I'm a guy. But I mean, have you been like called doctor before, like by your patients? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which is sad because I feel like there's a ton of females in, who are in medicine right now who are doctors. Yeah. and um, It's just sad that people just generalize females to nursing, males to doctors, yes. right? It doesn't matter at this what point. What about, like, have you ever had a family member where they had issues having a male nurse where they didn't want a male nurse at all? Oh, gosh. I'm trying to think. I'm sure, I'm sure it's happened. Yeah. I'm sure it's happened to me before. The only time um, I really noticed And then you just switch. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. Sorry. No, and then you just you go to your charge and you switch patients. Yeah, yeah same, mm-hmm. same for the most part. And uh, another question that we have regarding the IVF fertility reproductive mm-hmm. nurse. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm just wondering about, like, your workflow and how much different mm-hmm. it is compared to being a staff nurse at a PCU unit or ICU or right. anywhere else. So it's pretty much worlds apart. And that's the best part about nursing, right? People always ask me, should I become a nurse? What do you love about it? And I always say my favorite things are you can move to any city in America and you will get a job. You will always have a job because people will, are always going to get sick, right? And you will never get bored because if you get bored with a PCU after two or three years, you can move on to something at a clinic. You mm-hmm. could become a teacher. You could become an educator. There are just so many, the like options are limitless. You could go from peds to cardiac to ICU. There's just so much. Um, and so I think the pulmonary step down was kind of wearing me out. I wanted to try the Monday through Friday thing. Um, so I did IVF and I was the first male nurse that Northwestern's IVF clinic ever hired. Wow, congrats. Uh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, plaque on the wall i know right, right. so it was kind of a trial it was a test trial period um and it worked out really well uh there and that is actually a good point to talking about people who don't want males so i had to do something called iuis which are intrauterine insemination so prior to a woman starting in vitro um, and all the ivf medications uh you have a lot of insurance companies will require you to do at least six months of i six iuis Okay. Three, six. So what IUIs are is the man will give his sperm, the lab will wash it, and instead of them doing it naturally, you will open the woman's vagina with um, a speculum, and then you find the cervix. The cervix is like a donut with a little hole in the middle, and every woman's cervix go like uh, goes a different pathway and you can't see it, right? Because you can't. You don't have laser vision. So you go with, you go with, you have the tube of sperm and then you have a long plastic catheter and you kind of just figure out which way it goes and then you shoot the sperm in and it's like a direct way of pretty much being able to get someone pregnant and we can tell based on ultrasound and a woman's lining when they're about to ovulate so we can tell a woman when they're supposed to come in and when we have to do these IUIs so part of my job there was doing like I didn't have a lot there was a lot of more paperwork and more scheduling patients on meds and meeting with patients for patient histories but part of it was doing IUIs and there were some women who were uncomfortable um 
again, not a lot, like maybe one per every hundred. So okay. it was just like one woman because of a religious thing. And she'd be like, I really don't want you doing my IUI or like, I'm really close with my husband. It seems weird to have a guy do it. Um, but it was a great experience. I don't know. I loved it. The women loved me. I love them. It was great. I can say like, I've gotten more people pregnant than all my <laughs> friends combined. <laughs> um, like people would like when blood, like, pregnancy blood pregnancy tests would come back and it's my other nurse coworkers we like you can always check who did the IUI That's in awesome. epic and they'd be like Jake you did it and she's pregnant and <laughs> like and so the whole cool. like you all cheer in like the nursing room but it's cool it's just it's a it was more of a happy type of nursing because like it's still sad and right. some women have really heartbreaking stories um infertility is a huge problem nowadays and I think it's sad in a different way, but it's also very happy because you're helping give life versus yeah. seeing it taken away on a unit. Yeah, it's cool to get that perspective because I've never ventured out of um, the hospital setting and mm-hmm. I've never even heard of uh, the field you went, you went to before until, yeah. until you told me today. So it's actually really cool. I never knew that existed. It's super cool. What's the success rate for um, the IVF treatment? Like, is there like a ratio or what do you usually tell, like, for example, the patient? When- ah, gosh. I don't want to be quoted because I it's that, been I've, I've been I've been removed from it so long, but I, it, it's pretty low. Yeah. But women do have successes. So after say six IUIs, we know something's not working, right? And it could be male fat. And the thing is, a lot of people love to stigmatize and blame fertility on women, but thirty percent of the time, it's actually male factor. Interesting. And um, so. A lot of women take that burden on themselves, being like, I couldn't get pregnant for all these years, but in reality, it's the man. It's the guy. Um, so you, but we test both spouses. But the cool thing, after six IUIs, we'll say, you know what? We've tried this for six months. We've done the intrauterine insemination. It's not working. Um, we're going to try IVF. And so what's uh-huh. cool about IVF is that women only release one follicle. They, you have two ovaries, but one follicle takes over. One follicle on your ovary just grows larger than all the other ones once per month. And that's when women ovulate, right? Um, So what we do is we kind of press pause on that one and we give you meds to stimulate your ovaries, both of your ovaries to swell and you grow a bunch of follicles and we do ultrasounds every morning and then once you have enough that are 18 millimeters or greater, which equals mature um we will go in and they will go in we have a procedure room in the back the doctor will go in with this needle and like this little needle like goes into your ovary and literally sucks out your um eggs and then we take the eggs and we artificially disseminate them in the lab with your partner's sperm and then we give you you start a whole new round of meds to get your body ready for um the placement of that embryo and sometimes it takes sometimes it doesn't and sometimes i mean people will spend all this money and you have a perfectly healthy, you have an embryo and it won't take. And what people don't realize about miscarriages is that sometimes your body just knows that the baby is growing wrong or mm-hmm. one of the chromosomes isn't aligned, is aligned wrongly. So your body will just kill off it off on its mm-hmm. own. So there's no explanation for why sometimes women have miscarriages. It's just your body knows better than you do. Um, so there is a success rate, but it's, it's by a lot of factors like it's based on age um and there's something called amh which most women don't know about which is anti-malarian hormone so i just tell my girlfriend like my friends my girlfriends who are my age in their 20s i was telling them you know go get a blood test if you're concerned about it it's it's literally a simple blood test it's called amh if you're over 1.0 it it does can't tell you the quality of your eggs but can tell you the quantity have you noticed that if like i'm not i'm sure you get a woman that have been Mm -hmm. uh, on birth birth control previously Mm -hmm. right have you noticed that 
if someone's on birth control first amount of years, it's harder to get pregnant from. Is do you know anything about that? I haven't. Mm-hmm. I haven't noticed that. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. I was just curious. Just mm-hmm. for anybody out there that's on birth control. Let's bounce into travel nursing a yeah. little bit. What's like your favorite location? Why do you like it? Or what have assignments have you done? Yeah. Do you recommend people to travel? And where are you going next? Okay. So I moved to San Diego um, back in the fall, and. I've been there ever since. I resigned three times. I really only wanted to, I intended to resign once because if you're offered an extension, it always looks good for your next placement because it means the hospital liked you enough to ask you to stay and you're loyal enough to stay for more than one assignment. So it's always a very appealing to other hospitals as a traveler. So to all of my travelers out there, it, you don't have to do this, but I would recommend maybe extending one time just because it shows other hospitals that you're willing to stay and that you were a good nurse, right? Um, so I've been in San Diego. People joke and say that San Diego is where travel nurses come to die because <laughs> most people start traveling on the east and make their way west. I start that I just went straight west and now I don't know that I can go back east because <laughs> I like love it so much, you know. Um, so it's been my favorite place. It's been my only place. Um, unfortunately, I probably will go back into travel nursing at some point. Um, I don't maybe I don't know when, but I think I would like to do like Hawaii or San Francisco at some point. So you said you're going back to like San Diego, is that mm-hmm. what you mentioned? So is that not through a travel nursing agency still? Right. So I did, I just finished my last contract. I did nine months of travel nursing and now I'm going to sign on permanently. Okay. Yeah. So permanently there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Congrats. So you I really like the place then you just want, for those that know, if you want to test out different cities, you can do that. And then if you really like it. Yeah. And they like you, they'll just take you in like one of them, right? One thousand percent. Yeah, I helped knowing the manager and everything. So as soon as the listing opened, I I just shot email and they're like, we'd love to keep you. Wow. When you started travel nursing, what do you think was like the hardest part? Was it like finding housing or was it trying to, you know, mm-hmm. make friends on the unit or just the unit itself? I got really lucky with housing. Uh, my best friend's aunt had a house in San Diego that I rent. So that was just pure luck. Um I think making friends in this a new city. So I had two hospitals at the same time. One was in LA and one was in San Diego. And I have way more friends in LA. I ultimately chose San Diego because I wanted to challenge myself as a person okay. um, to step outside my comfort zone. I grew up in Chicago where I knew everyone and I went to high school and then my high school friends were my college roommates and my college friends were my current friends. So I just really was like, you know what, you've kind of had it easy this whole time. Let's sh- try to see how, if you can make it in a new city. So you literally stepped out of your, you know, comfort zone, your little bubble that you mm-hmm. had with your friends, and you just, like, you took everything in, job, work, mm-hmm. living. I mean, I didn't know a single person mm-hmm. moving to San Diego, a single one. And so I think my first three months was challenging. Yeah, I think in my first three months, I was kind of like, shoot, maybe I will finish this contract and go to LA. And I remember jumping on the phone with one of my friends who was also moving to LA at the time from San Francisco. And I was like, do you want to get an apartment together? And of course, selfishly, he could have been like, you know what, let's do it. I'm moving, you're, you're like one of my really good friends, let's do it. But he was a good friend and he was like, you're, you're taking away from what you told me you wanted to accomplish, wow. which was to step outside of your comfort zone. So if you're going to leave after three months, you're just kind of quitting. And so my contract, that contract ended in January, I went came home for like four days just to see my family because um, I didn't get to come home for Christmas or Thanksgiving. So I, because I worked those holidays, so I went back right after I took my second contract in San Diego. I went back, and my first day back, I was like, I need to text people and make friends. And now I have some of the friends I have there, or some of my greatest friends. Yeah. yeah. And you, like, what would be like the best tip that you would give to someone that's just starting out travel nursing? 
I think just just be flexible. I think as nurses, we already are pretty flexible. We're asked so much. We're, we have to adapt to units. We have to flow all the time. So I think if you can just go in with an open mind and be open to meeting people, you'll be fine. And yeah. the best part about nursing is that you're like fighting war through the trenches together. So I go to night shift. I'm bond with my coworkers so much because you're really just trying to make it to the next morning. And like through that friendship, you just, you, you, you may, you, not every person's going to jive with each other, right? There's some nurses that don't like me and I don't like them or we just don't jive. And that's okay. That's going to happen through life no matter what. But you will find friends. And it's not, it might not just be with your nurse coworkers. There will be other travelers on the unit. And then through them, you just, you just kind of branch out and meet people. So if you're open-minded and you're willing to accept change, and change is good, right? Ultimately, I think change is good. We don't like change sometimes. Mm-hmm. We like comfort so much. That's mm-hmm. why that's awesome that you took on that experience where you wanted to step out the, the comfort mm-hmm. zone. Not a lot of people like that. And that's why a lot of people are hesitating to do travel nursing. Right, right. So, because and, people think that you'll get lonely, right? And it, it's possible if you're have you Have you felt that person, like you being out there alone for like the first month or two not finding anybody? Yeah, for sure. 1,000%. percent like think withdrawals from your friends? Yeah, and so like coming from living... I mean, San Diego is a little bit of a smaller city, right? And so in Chicago, I live downtown. So even in the middle of the week, there was always something going on. Mm-hmm. You can find someone or something to do. Um, San Diego tends... It can be a little sleepy during the week week so and with a nurse's schedule we don't always work us mm-hmm. consistent you know monday tuesday wednesday or Thursday. so if you're off on a tuesday wednesday but your friend people are working you kind of find yourself like in your own head um but there's ways around that okay anything you else want to add on before we kind of wrap up the show um no just thank you guys for having me you guys are great awesome thank so you. where can we find you jake if anybody wants to follow or get in touch with you see more of your life or your travel experience thank you uh, my instagram is at jake Grez, so j-a-k-e-g-r-e-z and we'll add that in the video and for him so guys whoever watches whoever's been on this show and listening for over 50 minutes thank you guys <laughs> it's a longer form uh, we're excited to have our first guest and um, moving forward we'll have guests we're just getting into the flow of things The Travel Nurse Checklist is out if you guys want to download that for free. And we'll catch you guys on the flip side. Yep. Thank you, Jay, for coming by. Thank Thank you, guys. Later.